0: We're at the final chapter of Hosea, but it won't be the final message. We're going to read and focus this morning on chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, and we'll save verse 9, the final chapter or final verse of the, the book, as I think it is appropriately an epilogue addressed to all the readers of this book. I'm going to read beginning at verse one of chapter fourteen, and then I've asked Bob Mina if he would pray for the ministry of the word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him: Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us, we will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands, for in thee the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, he will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain, and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxurious cypress. From me comes your fruit. Let us pray.
1: Heavenly Father, it is good that we are gathered here this morning with one mind and one heart to hear your word preached this morning, Father. We, we thank you that you put it on our hearts and minds to be here in fellowship with one another, but more importantly, Father, to be under the guidance and the direction of your word. We pray for the ministry of the word this morning, as brought forth by your servant Mark. We are so encouraged by this proclamation of the Lord, Father, to His people, that He would restore them. Father, we know we take great encouragement that when we turn away from our sinless ways, Father, we call upon You that You restore us and You lift us up mighty trust and obey your word. Father. So we pray now for these words that out before us, Father, that you would strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, Father. We lift these things up to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.
0: There are many people, even in our day today, who think that God is a God, particularly as we see him in the Old Testament, as a God who seeks destruction of his people. Perhaps if they just were to flip open the Bible and read from the book of Nahum, where it says, God is a jealous and avenging God. He reserves wrath for his enemies. They would say, see, see, that's what God is like. And they would continue on and read, the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Well, these are true things about God. He is a jealous God. He is an avenging God. He will bring wrath on his enemies and leave, no, not leave the guilty unpunished. But to think that that is all that defines God, even in the Old Testament, would be wrong. And here in this book, as we've seen week after week, we see the threat of punishment, of affliction upon God's own people, Israel, and expressed sometimes in the word Ephraim, the fruitful one, that he would leave them and that he would not continue to love them. And yet we read of, from one of Hosea's contemporaries, the prophet Isaiah, the the passage where he is speaking to them of judgment to come, and he's speaking of his people and the judgment upon him, uh, upon them, and and he uses language, uh, I'll read it to you. It says he will be stirred to do his task, his strange task, his alien work. It's an alien work, a foreign work of God, to punish his own people. His love is so tremendous for them. His desire to give mercy is is greater and and stronger. And so he feels this it's a strange work. And to think that God is avenging on all people is wrong. He will not let the guilty go unpunished and yet and yet he will have mercy on his own people. He knows those who are his. He is jealous. Why? Because he is jealous for those who are rightfully his and his own, that he has made his own. And so what we see is that he speaks to Ephraim, and and again, Ephraim as the one who was called by his parents, the fruitful one is what it means. And he has given the In the history, we see Jacob blessed him with heaven, the blessings of heaven, it says, the blessings of the deep and the blessings of the womb, the material blessings and yet also the blessings of his posterity. And then Moses reiterates all of those things when he blesses the tribes of Israel he chooses the choicest of things for Ephraim that is how he is spoken of as that fruitful one and yet we see all through hosea these threats of judgment both on the material blessings what is classified as springs of fruit of the ground especially at the end of chapter 13 Though he flourishes among his brethren, an east wind will come, it says, and the fountains will become dry. And then in verse 16, we see this graphic picture of the the losing of their posterity, the fruit of the womb. And we think of these woeful judgments, but what are they for? Are they to then have him dismiss them from his sight, No, the judgments are to awaken them, to stir them, to drive them on to repentance. God is reserving mercy, and now he's proclaiming that mercy to them. Repent, or in your words, in verse 1 of chapter 14, return, or simply, turn, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Turn, return to me. Because he alone has justice. He will not punish the righteous along with the guilty. Because of his love. We heard of that book, that book of life, that book of remembrance that God has. He knows those who are his, and he will not forget them. And because of his name, and because of his glory... In Micah chapter 7, we read, Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of a remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. See, this is the God of not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. He will have his glory, but he will have his glory in redeeming his people. And bringing them to glory as well. And so the cry goes out. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. It's an invitation. Turn, turn to me. Now the Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he defines repentance as a grace of God's spirit. Whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled And visibly reformed. And he says there are six things that are involved in that. Uh, They have a sight of their sin. They, They see sin for what it is. And they have sorrow for that sin. But then they go on to confess that sin. But then it's almost like there is that idea in man. He knows that some of us will be sorry for our sin mainly sorry that we got caught. And we may confess that sin and say, yeah, that's wrong, but we have no, and this is where he says we need to move, shame for that sin. And that shame should turn into hatred for sin. And finally, it is represented by what he says, that visible reformation, that turning from that sin. And so it's as if Hosea starts at the back end. Hosea gives us that that kind of that end, that end picture. Turn, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now Israel did turn, but it turned the wrong way. If you'll permit me just to review a few things here from the the end, uh, as we are at the end of Hosea, reminding you in chapter 5, he says, their deeds will not allow them. Because of their sin, it will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them. He, he speaks of them further in chapter 6. You remember, he says, your loyalty is like the morning cloud and the dew that goes early away. That's not turning. Uh, their loyalty is, is worth less. And then in chapter 7, verse 10, it says, even though, let's see if this is the right one. Sorry, I'm on chapter 8. 7, verse 10, though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. And finally, in chapter 11, we read these words. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they call them to the one on high. They've been turning, but they've been turning the wrong way. And what does it say about Ephraim? Well, that tribe that was the central tribe, the the powerful tribe of where the the princes and the, the priests and kind of the headquarters of the northern kingdom, what does it say about Ephraim? Ephraim has mixed himself up with the nations, and Ephraim is a cake not turned. He, he's facing away and he's not turning to the Lord his God. And yet here is God saying to them, return, O Israel. Here is God doing the very thing now that, that we saw. And I, again, I do not believe it's a metaphor. I believe it has actually happened that Hosea was called by God in verse 3 saying this, The Lord said to me, that is to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. God is now doing that which he instructed Hosea as our picture, as that that not only word picture, but that, to me, actual thing that he asked him to do, go again. And here is God, here is God going again to a nation that spurned him as their husband, that turned away, who, that was disloyal, that committed adultery with the Lord their God. Return, O Israel, turn to the Lord your God. And there's two aspects, I think, here in this turning, because there is, repentance is a turning from something, but it doesn't stop there. It's a returning or turning to something. One without the other is not repentance. There are those who who say, you know, we have this kind of parallel book of of Amos that's, that's kind of written about the same time and to the same northern kingdom as Hosea. And one man has said that, that the, if you boil down the message to compare it, Amos' message is, destruction is before you, turn around. But the message of Hosea is, God is behind you, turn around. Turning from something and turning to, in this case, not something, but someone And it's not a philosophical turning. It's it's not a resolution. There are those who say, I will not sin. That's a resolution that's with you. It's the turning to the Lord your God. It's not a self denial, but it is a lowliness of heart. It is that humility inward. Some think of repentance as for credit. I'll look good if I tell people I'm repenting. Uh, Or it's for my profit. If I stop doing this, I think my business will be more successful. But that's not repentance. It's not to flatter yourself, it's not to be done haltingly either. There is an urgency here. Return. And yet, we also see in Scripture that God described Judah as one who turned with deception. Telling God, yeah, we're turning, but in their hearts, they are not turning. So there must be a turning to the Lord your God, but that turning is to the Lord your God. It's turning to and restoring that, which I think is the heart of Hosea, that loyalty, that promise, that covenant relationship. That broken loyalty that we see in Israel is is what he's addressing first with this turning. The Lord, your God. God has an exclusive right to your soul, is what he's saying and you're going to turn to your God. Many repent and turn to other things, do they not? It's a false repentance. I I renounce this sin because it's no longer profitable to me, but it doesn't keep them from falling into other sins that are profitable. But he's saying, turn to the Lord your God. It's not to a something, as I say, but to a someone. Edward Reynolds took up his pen after the death of Jeremiah Burroughs, and Jeremiah Burroughs got through chapter 13, verse 13 of Hosea before he passed away. And Edward Reynolds was tasked with writing the commentary on Hosea chapter 14. And in writing that, he gave a series of seven sermons. He preached them to the House of Commons assembled in Parliament, In 1642 and when he came to this verse he was so struck by this to the Lord your God that that aspect that yes you turn but who is it and how is it that you turn that he wrote this beautiful sentence I think he says this imports a full thorough constant continued conversion with a fixed rooted united established heart yielding up the whole conscience and conversation to be ruled by God's will in all things. See, there's a seriousness here. There, there's a This turning doesn't involve that half-heartedness. It, it doesn't involve a ritual. It doesn't involve a ceremony. It is the turning of the heart. It is that inward, and yet there is the outward, because there is the, the inward which is full and thorough, but there's the outward, the yielding, and, and the following. And what are the motives that God cites here? He says, for you have stumbled. You, you've stumbled because of your iniquity. That, that stumbling is, is this, the consequences multiplied over and over, as we've seen in Hosea, because of your political ramblings because of your economic frustrations because of your religious instability you've stumbled and this iniquity well we saw it in chapter 13 verse 12 the iniquity that is bound up as a treasure he's storing up that iniquity and all of these things involved in rebellion and deceit and just loyalty and his perversity and his worship But now we see his mercy towards sinners who repent. It is said in the scriptures, I believe it's in Jeremiah, that Jeremiah proclaims that God's word is like a hammer and it's like fire. It's like a hammer to break your heart, the hard, stony heart. But it's also like a fire because the fire is going to melt that heart. Why is it melted so that it can be molded anew in the righteousness of God. And so he's saying, I gave you these threats of judgment, but now because you've stumbled in your iniquity, I'm calling you, return, return to the Lord your God. Not only is the repentance a turning, but we see here that repentance is exacting. God gives us instruction here in verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord your God. Say to him, take, turn, take words with you. It's almost as if we say, well, what, what does he mean? Take words with you. What, what, what's the picture here? The question is brought up in Micah chapter 6 this way. Before that beautiful passage that we all know, he has shown you, O man. There, there's a the question that precedes that, and it says, "With with what shall I come to the Lord?" He says, "Shall I come with burnt offerings, or or maybe I should come with rivers of oil, or or maybe I should bring you my firstborn, the the product of my own body." And now he says. Micah goes on and says, no, no, he's shown you, oh man, what to do. God is showing them what to do. It's not a ceremony. He's He's here, it's almost as if he is directly thinking about, this is what you want to do, isn't it? Isn't it? you want to bring a sacrifice, maybe a bigger one this time, maybe, maybe something that cost you a little bit more. But he's already told them in chapter 6 that, that verse where he's, he's speaking of Ephraim, what, what will I do with you? What, what can I do with you, O Judah? He says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. He's already told them, no, you're not going to bring rivers of oil. You're not going to bring your firstborn. What you bring to me when you repent is words. And you think, well, why words? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'll know what your repentance is by the words that you speak. Take words with you and return. Say to me. It's as if he is saying it is imperative for you to think before you talk to me about repentance. It's imperative that you... You take seriously what you're going to say, or we take the warning warning of the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter five. Do not be hasty in word or impulse in thought or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Think this through. Take words with you. Take words in accordance to His will, according to His righteousness, His precepts. His guidance of you by the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula here, and I'm afraid that some will take it just like some take the Lord's Prayer. They, they take it as a mantra or this thing that you say, and that the words somehow have the, the meaning in them. No. He, he's saying, take words with you, take words of acknowledgement here's that owning up of your sin, getting a sight of your sin, words of acknowledgement, words of acceptance that I am a sinner. Don't be like Israel or Ephraim was in chapter 12, verse 8. He, he, says, he says this very arrogantly. In my, all my labors, they will find in me no iniquity that could be called sin. See, God is saying, no, unless you have a sight of your sin, unless you acknowledge that sin in the words that you say, and words of acceptance, then it is not repentance. And not only words of reple- re- repentance, but notice the words of plea that come here. Fleeing, as David in his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, he, he knew. A broken and contrite spirit, O God, thou wilt not despise. These are words of pleading. These are words of contrition. Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. There are particular prayers, particular things that we ought to say. We ought to acknowledge that God alone can take away sin. Again, we can't have a resolution like we always try to do on January 1st, right? I will not do this any longer. He says, no, you you must plead, you must take these words on your lips. Take away, make atonement for, remove by destroying them from me. And destroying what? All iniquity. In the Hebrew, that word all comes at the beginning of the sentence as, as if there's a particular emphasis by God on it. All iniquity take away. Praying against all sin. Praying against all the aspects of sin, all the forms that those sins have. It's, it's like you, you put something up for auction, right? And, and you hold a reserve, right? If I don't get this, then i'm not i'm going to withdraw my item from auction but you cannot hold any sin in reserve with god that's not repentance that's not what he's looking at who are we dealing with here the writer to the hebrews remind us all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's who we present ourselves to. And that's why he says, all, all, take away all iniquity. Not just some, and we keep our pet sins. No, all iniquity. And then he says, and receive us graciously. It's as if that God is instructing us to say these things in a way that says, God, when you pardon, keep on. Keep on giving us a further evidence of your fatherly mercy to us. Keep on giving us the, the, your goodness. Keep on giving us that which, which comes from you. Because we know that there is only one who is good. There is only one who is good and doth good, as the Scriptures say. All goodness is from Him. And if there is to be any grace, if there is to be any reception of goodness, then you must teach us how to discern it. Teach us to long for us. Exhort us in your goodness, it could be translated. Exhort us to that meekness and that humility. Exhort us to that dependence upon you. Exhort us to that fidelity that, that loyalty that you desire as your bride to you, the, gr- the bridegroom. And exhort us to use all that goodness and all these things that you give us for your glory. N- not for my gain, not for my greed, but, but for your glory. And, and then that we may present the fruit of our lips. Some of your scriptures may say some of your translations. It, it literally is the fruit of calves, the fruit of bulls, and it's as if God is trying to remind them again. See, you you made those calves, right? David gave us a little history on on Sunday night about Jeroboam, the calf up in Dan in the north, and Bethel in the in the southern region of the northern kingdom that they were to worship, and it's it's like. Do, do you not see the, the vanity of the ceremony of those worships, even of the calves, compared to what is true repentance? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a gratitude here. There's a fruit that comes from, from this inward change and outward reformation. There's a fruit of lips that glorifies God. That is the positive aspect. But there is this negative aspect, the, the turning from something, the turning from their sins. And here they confess it. Here's, here's where in verse 3 they come down to, to their specific sins, the things that we've, we've looked at over and over in Hosea. Assyria will not save us. He's saying, there is no savior but God alone. Assyria can't do it. We, we see that now. We see that our confidence in that country and their military might was detestable to God. Assyria will not save us, he confesses. We will not ride on horses. I, I think it's a kind of an obscure reference to Egypt. In in Isaiah 31, he proclaims this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And then it talks, and we sing that song sometimes in the chorus. You know, some put their trust in chariots, some put their trust in horses, some put their trust in the mighty soldiers of Egypt. But they say, no, we'll not ride on horses. We, We won't go that path again. Nor will we say, and this is beautiful, Because they've been, you know, what has been the constant theme? Their idolatry. They're they're turning to these idols and treating them as gods. He said, nor will we say again, our God, to that which is simply a work of our own hands. Somebody prayed about us slapping God in the face. Treating a a man-made object as if it were our God, it came from our own hands, and they recognize that now, and there's that shame. (laughs) We thought that something we actually made and produced, we would have the audacity to call it God and turn our back on him. Now they have come to trust the mercy that they have received at the end of verse 3, for in thee, for in thee the orphan finds mercy. It's at once a ground of their confession on this truth that the fatherless, the, the, the outcast. The the one that he describes in Hosea as the wild donkey wandering around trying to find friends and nobody would have him, (laughs) but he finds mercy in God. In a sense, these people who were destitute of any ability, destitute of of, of any wisdom, of, of figuring it out, vulnerable to the nations, Israel, Assyria, and Egypt. They were vulnerable to to not only the the captivity and the violence that would come upon them, but just the the injury that they would do to them and to their countryside. And now we see come full circle, do we not, to chapter 1 where he pronounced the children of Hosea and Gomer, Lo Ami, it's now he's reversed that, and he's saying, Ami, you are my people. And instead of being, low ruhamak, she has not obtained, Ah, ruhamak, you have obtained mercy. Here I'm in mean, glory to God. This is it. This is where they have arrived. We see now in you the orphan receives mercy. God says, not only that, but you will have a great reward in your repentance. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger has turned away from them. I was looking at these verses, 4 through 8, and it starts with three, I will, I will, I will, and then it's doubled when you get to the other verses because then it becomes, he will, he will, he will. These promises of God, these commitments of God, I will heal, I will love, turn into beautiful, beautiful rewards for his people. And again, you you, you read through Hosea and you get these metaphors and you get these similes and they pile on and these images come at you. I mean, he's just a master at these things. And and also what we discover is that the Holy Spirit... (laughs) is less demanding than your elementary grammar teacher because he gets away with mixed metaphors in here. But he just compiles them and it's beautiful things that you see. He says, I will heal their apostasy. Some of your versions will say backsliding. I haven't done a study on backsliding, but I don't like the word because backsliding means that something else is pulling you down. Apostasy is that they have turned faithlessly away from God. That's not backsliding. That's turning their back in sin on God. And he says, I will heal them. Now, the word healing means there's something wrong, right? It can be an injury, a wound, or a disease, a cancer. And it needs to be healed. Again, God is saying to them, it is incurable until I put my hand on it, until I, the great physician, do my work. I will heal them. He pardons. He buries. He covers our sins. He crushes sins, to use some of the words that are taught in our scriptures. I cover these sins because I'm not imputing them to you. But I will heal them because... Sin is painful, sin is wasting, sin is debilitating, sin is wearying, it saps us of strength, it deforms our bodies inwardly and outwardly. You see someone caught in sin, their physical body changes, their outlook, the way they present themselves, the way they act. There is a decay and a weakness that comes from sin. We may enjoy our sin, but it is destroying us. And he says, I will heal your apostasy. I will love them freely. Here's grace. There are those who say there's no grace in the Old Testament. Here it is. I will love them freely. It's as if God says, out of my enjoyment... Out of my own abundance, out of my own joy for you and life, I will choose to love you. You were that wild donkey. You were you that one who was or is seen in, in Gomer chasing after her lovers. No, I went again. I'm going again. And I'm going after you to turn you because I love you freely. My anger is turning away from them. He gives the assurance. He doesn't just say the words. He he knows what we're like. He knows we're skeptics. He knows that others in this world have promised us great things and never delivered the way we thought. That all the things we sought for were never satisfying. But he always gives us these little phrases. My anger has turned away from them. It's his assurance that I will do these things. It's on me. <laughs> I have your back. I'm the one who will restore. I'm the one who will give you these things. Doesn't doesn't that, I don't know, just that alone is worth the price of admission, isn't it? <laughs> I, I assure you of these things. And then he goes on, and I can't begin to un. Uh, you know, give you the full totality of this list. But in 5 through 7, he begins by saying, I will be like the dew to Israel. And we saw the dew, how it goes away early in the morning, but the dew that is God is refreshing it's renewing. It's nourishing. There's this power in it. Look at it. They'll blossom like the lily. They'll take root. Oh, we saw the stumbling, right? The instability in verse 1 has now become stability. He's sending down roots like the cedars of Lebanon. There, they're, See, God... God is not stilting in his gifts to his children. God is not half hearted when he gives these things. God doesn't do these things by halves. He's all in. Here it is their prosperity, their stability, there's a vigor, there's a vitality. I'm not a, you know, you know me, I don't like perfumes or colognes. I don't, I don't like wisteria, okay? I, but he says the fragrance of the cedars of Lebanon, and he talks about the olive tree. Oh, you know, I, I was working in my shop this week, and I was, I was working with a piece of olive wood, And it smells so good when you turn it on the lathe and the shavings come off. Martha even brought it in as a little potpourri thing because it smells so good. Shakespeare, you can have your rose, whatever you want to call it. I'll take olive wood. And you go into a cedar closet. Doesn't a cedar closet is one of the best smells you can smell? To me it is because it smells of... God. It smells of cleanliness. It smells of taking away sin, taking things away that are harmful. All of these things piling on, piling on, piling on. And I will make you, his renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. It's almost as if he was saying, the vintage name that I'm going to give you is, is like the best vintage wine you could think of. These are things that come from God himself. And what is the result? <laughs> Besides the verse that came to my mind, biblically, beyond all they could ask or think. And, and God says, oh Ephraim, verse eight, Oh Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Now I think that's uh, not a good representation of the Hebrew. I think it ought to be something like Ephraim shall say, what more have I to do with idols? There's the completion of the repentance. There's the complete turn, the outward reformation, where Israel says, I cannot believe it. What more will I have to do with idols? Making representations in wood and silver and gold that are not God. I'm turning away from that. Now, it could be, as some take it, a complaint from God, where he's, there's that anguish and love of God mixed together, coming out like the New American Standard. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? But, but I think it's the completion of their turning. But God does ask these questions of us. He gives us the answers, but here are the questions. In verse 8, you might say something like, Can anyone answer your call for help, Israel? He says, Ah, It is I who answer. Can there be anybody like Assyria or Egypt or any other nation that is going to protect you? It is I who look after you, Israel. He says, Can anyone be good to you? Can anyone give you anything that will be good? And he says, I am like a luxuriant cypress. I'm durable, I am constant, and I am beautiful, and I will be that to you. He says, it's almost as if he asked, can you produce anything you need, anything you want? No, for from me comes your fruit. And there we come back around again, Ephraim the fruitful one who was wasting his fruitfulness, wasting his energy, wasting who he was on things that never satisfied, things that were idols and no God. And he's saying, I will be your fruit. I will make you fruitful. I will make you alive from my richness and my nourishment, you will be Ephraim again. But what do we make of all these things? Well, Just a final reminder that repentance is required. And you say, where do you get that? Well, in Jesus' first sermon in Matthew chapter 4, the very first word of that sermon, he begins... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, it, it's an expectation of God. It's a, it's a proclamation from God, this is what my people need to do. And at the end of his life, when he's on that great day when he rose from the dead, he's walking with the two men and explaining all that they needed to fill in. what just happened here? And at the end of that conversation, before he left them, he says, And repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. See, repentance was on the heart of Christ. Repentance was on the heart of those whom he taught. On the heart of the Apostle Paul. When he's before King Agrippa and Agrippa is trying to go, okay, you, you had this experience and, and used to persecute Christians and now you, you, you teach Christians. And, and Paul simply, it's almost an exasperation. He, he says, and I taught them to repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. There's that expectation. There's that requirement for his people. And so we pray. We take words with us. We take words of acknowledgement of our sin and acceptance that we are sinners and God is the only one who can heal us of that iniquity. We pray for remission of sin. We pray that he would do as he said, take away the condemnation for sin because as we know in Isaiah 53, he has laid the iniquity of us all on him. And we also pray for sanctification By Christ's death and by the Holy Spirit, we ask for the power to resist sin and temptation. To subdue that power that we may grow, that we may be truly being sanctified, saved, set apart for Christ as his bride. And we pray for that continued renovation or that continued demonstration of a Reformed heart, as Watson says. He who began a good work in you, oh, pray to him, plead to him, continue that work, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so as Watson said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. We hear the words echoing through this book, if not just this chapter, return. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. I think it is fair for me to say, return, O church, to the Lord your God. Return, O Christian, to the Lord your God. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, You have issued perhaps the, the greatest invitation that's ever been given in the church. Return to the Lord your God. No ceremony, no carts to sign, no aisle to walk down. But before you, you have made a way that we might return, that we might glorify you. Father, I pray, do your work. Do your work in your hearts of your people everywhere, not just here in this place, in this city, but around the country, around the world, that they, we, might return to you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Prepare us for that great day when the bride of Christ will be without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing but be prepared to meet her bridegroom, and so we shall be with the Lord. Prepare us, help us do it, we ask in Christ's name, and for the building up of his church. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul has talked about all sorts of evil, he says, to us as a church, as individual believers, but flee from these things, you man of God, you woman of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. Amen.